Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel, and my incredible guest today, I have Brenda Schultz. She is a professional Dutch tennis player, reached all the way up into the top 10, number nine in the world rankings, recorded the fastest serve ever, played at the center court and the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, as well as the U.S. Open, and is the founder of the TEDS Foundation. Brenda, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a wonderful day in Florida today. Oh, yeah. Lucky you. I'm here up in New Jersey. It was snowing yesterday. So, uh, yeah, I love yeah. the snow, but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely nice to walk outside with the dogs and not be having put coats on and things like that. <laughs> yes, I am very uh, envious of Florida weather, especially now. Now, maybe we can have another conversation in July and August and, and uh, <laughs> it might be a little different, but it <laughs> is what it is. And we are here to discuss your playing career. Obviously, we're here to talk about your foundation, the Ted's Foundation, what you're mm-hmm. doing, how you're doing it. Very excited. But Brenda, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Um. I think it's God-given talent. I kind of had the body to play sports, you know, since I was a little little girl. Uh, my dad was a soccer player, n- never became professional, but was very close, but chose to get a, a normal job as a weather forecaster in the airport. And he, since I was little, you know, he would go play soccer with me. He would throw the ball with me on the beach. He was always taking me. The minute he wasn't in his job, he would do something with me and my sister, who's five years older, uh, always doing something outside. So I think since I was young, he took me skiing since I was three years old. So, yeah, always outside doing sports. That's the way to do it, right? Get outside, be a little competitive, have some fun, stay active. I guess that's the physical aspect. As you said, you kind of you had the body for it from a young person and, and you were able to do that. But I guess what about the other side of sports, right? What about the, the competition and, and the, the, the community aspect and all of those? Did that ever resonate with you, especially from a young age? Now, I think that's what in the tennis game was a little bit missing sometimes because you're alone. And uh, my, my dad really picked tennis because he thought it was a wonderful sport for girls. He said in, in Holland at the time when I was like eight, nine years old, soccer was more for boys. It's almost like playing football, American football here. And now it's changed tremendously. But when I was young, it was just like soccer were for, for boys and not for girls. So tennis was a great sport that he also started at the same time that I started. Um, so I, it, it's more individual. So we also, uh, with the boys in school, there was a couple of kids that played baseball. And I, I kind of liked the team sports probably a little bit better. Um, luckily when I was young in Holland, it's a big team sport tennis in a way of like you play club matches. And even when you're 10, 11 years old, I would play with people in the team that were maybe in their thirties or forties or fifties. Um, but you have two girls on a team and two guys and you play singles, doubles and mixed doubles. And it's the whole day on, on Sunday. So I think that helped me. Because I think if it was just individual when I was young, I, I probably would have geared more to a team sport. Um, but luckily, we had those club matches and and that I did feel like I belong with a club. I belong with more people that like the same thing. And that 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 was part of it, like you said. I mean, I had athleticness, you know, I mm-hmm. had that in me. But um, at the, as the mental part of it, nobody's really your friend because you're trying to beat everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like my husband played football, American football for University of Cincinnati. 
And he still to this day, he has his buddies. It's like, oh, let me call that guy. He He's doing this now. He can help us with this. And he had that 50 guys on the team that were all uh, friends. Like they all wanted to beat the other team, but mm-hmm. it's still 50 people on his side. And with me, you know, you keep going. And sure, you have some friends here and there, but then when you have to play each other, mm-hmm. it's still hard. So I think that indiv- individuality... Um, was was tough. I I didn't like that almost, uh, you know. But still, it, yeah, it can be difficult, right? And that was actually my my next topic. My next question was was really getting into the sport of tennis. So you touched upon that with your dad, as you said, you both started kind of playing the sport of tennis at the same time. And really, with with it being, you know, you at a young age, thankfully, and and, and you know, appreciate the explanation and and the uh, the the details on. Okay, well, at least we had these club matches. So you did have people on your team. When you did start to get older, though, and you kind of got phased out of that aspect of it, how much harder did it get to really just be singular? As you said, even, you know, you're playing for your country. Well, at some point, you're going to play the other women in your country, right? If you're, if you're right. You, no matter what, even if you have a doubles teammate, at some point, you're most likely going to meet up with them. So as you said, I really like the way you put it. You know, you, you have some friends, but you're always trying to beat them, too. How did right. that, did that, did you just get used to that aspect or did you? like get comfortable with it especially as you got older into the professional ranks like how did you deal with that mentally and emotionally as well all right i i think it was funny because the higher you get on the ranking the higher your friends become ranked so when Mm -hmm. in the beginning you know you have friends that are ranked top 100 when you're ranked 300 and then when you make it top 100 then your friends are top 50 and then Mm -hmm. when i made it to the to nine in the world, my friends were like Monica Sales, Gabriela Sabatini, who were like one, two, and three in the world, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's funny. Like the minute you start beating people, <laughs> they don't like you as much anymore. Yep. And and that's you know the stories about Monica Sales or Steffi Graf or Gabi, you know my double partner. I played a lot with Gabriela Sabatini doubles, so we had our best results. And the stories about them, it's like, it's just not true. They're awesome people. They're super nice. But, you know, when Steffi would beat somebody in the finals, used to be also a friend of mine that we had the same coach, Natasha Soreva, and she beat her 6-0, 6-0 in the finals of the French Open. It's very hard to like that person after that. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like... You can't give him a game because the whole match can turn around, mm-hmm. but you literally get booed by 20,000 people watching this. So, um, yeah, for, for those top players that, that were beating on a constant basis, you know, they're beating these people badly, just like a Serena or Venus Williams uh, did for a long time. A, a lot of bad press on them just because people are pissed, you know, they're mm-hmm. like, shoot, I just yeah. got my butt kicked. So, oh. so that's the hard part. And I think um, for me, what helped me in my sport was the, the Federation Cup. It's kind of like for the girls, you have Federation Cup. For the guys, it's Davis Cup. And you do at least play three times a year. You play with your team and you play in your country. And I, I love those, those matches. You know, it's like most people are familiar with Davis Cup. And that's what you feel. I would play in Holland for... 10,000 people and you know there's people rooting for me including the girls from Holland because mm-hmm. they wanted to to beat America or they wanted to beat Czechoslovakia or wherever the other country was so that that also got our the girls from the country that are the top a little bit closer together for for at least that that time um, but still like then everybody wants to be ranked number one in Holland mm-hmm. and then you want to be top 10 in the world because for sponsorship or for whatever reason 
so it, it's it's always hard and you know yeah there's really there's not much you can do about it right if you don't beat your friend that means they beat you so how much you know how exactly. much better can it really get it's just unfortunate but that is yeah. the uh the blessing and the curse of individual sports as you said you know if you get in the top 10 it's all you you get all the fame you get all the glory but you know those days where it's not so great or you beat your friend and you know you still have that relationship with them that's right. where you feel all that defeat. And it is unfortunate that you can't really share in that with too many other people. And I guess, you know, with, with that being said, what, what was it like? Top 10 in the world. That's pretty darn cool. Like, you, yeah. you know, just say it now. It's been a couple of years, just a few. But like, kind of <laughs> looking back on it, like that's got to be pretty darn cool. Like only a few, what, 25-ish years ago, you were top 10 in the world. You were one of the best players at right. your sport reminiscing on that looking back like what was it like in the moment and what is it like looking back on it now now it's interesting i mean i remember my dad saying hey if you can be the best player of this club that in amsterdam you know mm -hmm. and then you become the best player of the club and then it's like okay now you're going to be a professional player in order to make a living you had to be kind of top 100 in the world mm -hmm. before that if you don't make it to the main draw of the grand slams of, of wimbledon french open mm -hmm. those four grand slams that you have us open um you, you really don't make any money so you have to travel around you have to find a sponsor or your country sometimes sponsors you so um so then it's very important to break that top 100 so when i broke the top 100 it was like that was a goal, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm making money in this. But then in order to get to the top 50 or higher, you need a, a coach. And then the coaches are expensive. So now you're still spending more mm -hmm. money on your coach and his flights and food and hotel and everything. So then you start doing the math. And you're like, really, if I want this coach and I don't want to stay with three other girls in a hotel room, I, I really need to be top 30 in the world. And then when you actually top 30 in the world, then you're like, Gosh, it's still going out mm -hmm. and it's still so when when I finally made it top ten, it was so many things help out. You get free hotel rooms, you get uh, a car in the tournament for free, you 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 get your points, you get you know, you're making really a lot of money. Plus, um, so life becomes easier, you know, when mm -hmm. you have to, I'm tall, I'm 6'3". So if I fly to Australia for 14 hours, 20 hours, whatever it is, to Perth. Um, you sit in the back of the bus and, it, you know, you're like mm -hmm. this. And then you see like Steffi and Monica and the top 10 players, they fly first class or business class at least. So all those things happening. I mean, it's kind of it's, it's kind of a funny world because when you need the money for the hotel rooms, mm -hmm. when you're like 100, then they obviously now you're making enough to pay for your hotel room. But now, the you know, you get the suite, you get the nice, you get in the masters in the UN Plaza, you know. So it's really nice to with the ranking mm -hmm. it's like you, you get so many things with that you know you get your your car you can call up the us open i want a car to come me up pick me up right here mm -hmm. instead of taking the bus you know at a certain time so it life becomes so much easier when you reach that that level so, yeah, yeah. And, and and you well deserved it right like you worked very very hard to get there and i and i understand it is I guess ironic is kind of the word, right? Like when you need it, you have to pay for it. But once right. you once you don't really need to pay for it, they give it to you for free. So you always got to love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> I guess that's just the way of the world. It is what it is. But I still think it is really cool. I still think it's absolutely incredible. Again, you made it to the quarterfinals and to the biggest, you know, two of the four biggest, as you said, the Grand Slams. I think what do I have? Wimbledon and the well, U.S. Open. I'm yeah. going to the U.S. Open, obviously, this year. 
didn't quite go. Uh, but no, the last few, <laughs> the last few years, I've been able to go and hang out and and spend time there. Thankfully, my wife's work uh, they let us go each year. They get us tickets and a bus and drink champagne on the way there. It is a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, it is a lot yeah. of fun. But it's such a cool event. We usually go pretty early on in the event, right. so it's I've never been to a match outside of the the U.S. Open or, or really like a tournament. Right. It's just so cool. The opportunity for anybody who, who's listening and hasn't been you literally there's, I think what, like 18 courts, you can walk to anyone, like unless right. it's like the main event matches at the end of the night, you can just walk into a building and say, Hey, I'm just going to sit down here and do this. And here we go. And you can walk from one to the other. And you could be from me to this computer screen away from the top 10 player in the world. And it was right. just so cool getting that opportunity. So I always really liked it. What was sure. it like? playing there right like how how cool was it especially again just going to the u.s open because that's the only one i know what was it like seeing just all the people and 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 the the pageantry and the crowds and everything especially from when you weren't ranked in the top 10 and then through the years when you eventually did get there how 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 much fun did you have when you were there yeah i remember even playing the juniors there when i was 16 and uh, and i stayed in housing in great neck with this lovely family and i took the the train Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and those people, I stayed there for three years, even when my ranking got higher. And then finally, I remember staying in the city and, and going there. But I mean, every time, like you said, every time my ranking would go up a little bit. So it went from the juniors to then being like 105th playing the qualifying. And I have to say, New York was the toughest tournament for me to play in the beginning. Uh, all the other Grand Slams, especially the French Open, I grew up on Red Clay mm-hmm. in Holland. So I was very familiar um, with playing on, on Red Clay, but it was kind of weird because my serve was known you know, as the fastest serve. Mm-hmm. And I really should have had probably earlier on a serve and volley game but because i grew up on this slow slow red clay in holland that's normally wet and cold and so people know about tennis they know that it's a very slow surface and it's very hard to play serve and volley or chip and charge or anything to come to the net they just laugh at you they have so much time to pass you right so um when i came to america and i start playing more on hard court I had to kind of change my game around. And in the beginning, I did really well when it was fast. So on grass, I knew when to come into the net. Mm -hmm. And then on clay, I knew I had kind of Western grips like a Nadal. And I I would just hit heavy topspin ball from the baseline. But on the hard court, on on, US Open is kind of a slow hard court. So it's kind of in between. Mm -hmm. And I got caught in no man's land. I said, should I come in? Should I stay back? So it took me really... um, Really, till, till I met my husband, um, Sean, I was 24 years old and I was 30 in the world. So it, it wasn't that I was bad, but I mm-hmm. would just make it to the second, third round. And in the other Grand Slams, I would make it already to the round of 16, to the fourth round. Um, but then he came and he started kind of filming me a lot. So I could see that my first step, mm-hmm. that I was too slow or that I was kind of hesitating. And then he started saying, like, every time you came into the net, you won the point. And I only remembered the part that I got passed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I was like, no, I went in and the girl passed me. And he's like, yeah, you, you got passed five times, but you won 20 points, you know? So he kind of convinced me and, and that helped a lot of, of like, keep coming, keep coming. Don't, don't stay back. So mm-hmm. um, that year that I made it to the quarters, I definitely played serve and volley a lot and chip and charged and, yeah, it, it started really clicking. But it, it's a game, a certain volley game, like Martina Navratilova, Jana Navratilova. 
most of them it clicks a little later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that just hit from the baseline and just hit every ball back, like a Martina Hingis or Monica Sales or Jennifer Capriati, Mart- you know, all those girls, they kind of mm-hmm. had like a baseline game, even Serena. Um, but but a serving volley and a chip, those things takes a little bit time to to know where to 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 go when people mm-hmm. are passing you. So yeah, it's 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 a game that develops a little later. Mm-hmm. And and that's understandable, right? It's something where there's a lot of feel. It sounds like involved. It's it's something that you need to you need to see every different type of shot. And there's only millions upon millions upon millions of times to do it. So right, it's right. after putting in all that practice. And, and and as you said, you know, with your husband being able to film you as well. So shout out to him for helping yeah. out. And and you know, so that is that is pretty cool. And and you know, thankfully you were able to. Uh, succeed at, at such a high level. So again, shout out to you there. I think that is absolutely incredible. And throughout your career, I did notice that uh, I think it was somewhere in the mid nineties, you actually did have to retire due to uh, some prolonged injuries. What was that like? Because I know with a lot of athletes, you never really get the opportunity to say I'm done. It's usually somebody else saying, Hey, you're finished. And, and being very, being an athlete, Let's be honest, there has to be a little bit of ego involved. And being an athlete within an individual sport, it sounds like there has to be a little bit of extra ego involved as well. What was it like essentially having, to, you know, even if you did say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm finished, I'm retired. It was because of something, not because you felt like you were finished. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that just seems like a very heavy conversation to have with yourself and obviously some of your loved ones. Right. Now, what happened was in 1994, I met Sean and that year I did very well. Um, he, he was besides filming, he was telling me to listen to Anthony Robbins and Napoleon Hill and a lot yep. about, you know, I was tall and I sometimes would want to be mm-hmm. smaller because I want to make everybody feel good and feel my height. So he was like, stand up straight and wear the dress and do this. And in football, you, you film get filmed a lot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so so it's very important that um so when he met me he was like but who is filming you? you you don't know that you're doing this so the filming part became an everyday thing and and that worked really well and then him just keep telling me the confidence so uh, in 1995 that was kind of the first time that i made a top 10 in the world but right two weeks before we got married my mom passed away and that was just, uh, it was like, I, I was the happiest in the world, you know, mm-hmm. finding the guy, he's 6'5", you know, exactly what I would ever wanted. And then I'm my highest ranking. And suddenly my mom flew to America to have my wedding dress and everything, because obviously you're traveling all over the world mm-hmm. and didn't have time for that. So she, she came to, to the States and then when she flew back, she had a little bit of a headache and she got an aneurysm. And I was actually in the finals of a tournament against uh, Conchita Martinez in Delray Beach. And I had to default and just fly home and, and see her right away. Um, and there it's also interesting because Aranza Sanchez's dad had a, had a heart attack mm-hmm. and she played the finals, didn't go home. Luckily, he survived. If mm-hmm. I would have made that choice, I would have not been able to say goodbye to my mom. So mm-hmm. we all make these choices. She pulled up the trophy and said, this is for my dad. And he lived a little longer. Um, I was very happy that I went home mm-hmm. and was be able to say goodbye to my mom. But on the other hand, after that, I lost like five first rounds. I 
couldn't focus anymore. She she did a lot for me when I was a kid. You know, you, yeah, somebody absolutely. has to drive you to the tournaments, and mm-hmm. especially when you don't have a driving license yet. I mean, I did a lot with the train and the bus, but she was a big part in my life to to always be positive. Whenever I lost the first round, I would call her up and say, "Mom, I lost." You know, she's like, "Hey, you still have your arms and legs. You can do this next week again." Love it. So very positive. Um, my dad, on the other hand, where I got all the athletic parts from he was a little bit more negative Mm. so when all these things happened um sean had to make a decision or i i kind of made the decision when i lost those first rounds and my ranking was going back from 10 to like 19 20 he said listen i'm a stockbroker i work for dean witter now i can always do this the rest of my life because i said i i just can't do this anymore alone in this hotel rooms so i i told him either you quit or i quit but I'm done here. You know, it was just, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't sleep well. And so he said, okay, I'll quit <laughs> and I'll come to you. So he came to the French open and, um, you know, start talking to me. He, he was a very much a believer. So I wasn't grown up with believing in God. Um, so it was really tough on me because I felt like, oh, my mom is gone. You know, mm-hmm. my dad was kind of in the understanding you're six feet under, you're done. So he came, he's like, no, she, she didn't do all that for you. She's still there. She's still with us. And um, yeah, it was teaching me a whole different thought process, mm-hmm. what, what helped me tremendously. And then um, actually, then I went to Wimbledon and he said, okay, I'll go with you. You know, um, I'm telling all my clients I'm, I'm done. And, and he came and that was the first quarterfinals that I made. The only problem was that, when I got to the quarterfinals, I was like crying in the dressing because I wanted my mom to, mm-hmm. to really be there physically. Even that he convinced me that she was still there and everything was still there, it was still really difficult. And it was almost more difficult the better I did that year. And, and I really did real, like I said, I, I did Wimbledon quarters and then US Open quarters. And then you have the championships in New York. And, and um, it was in the, uh, Madison Square Garden. Oh, oh the, yeah, the there we go. Right, and I got to the semis there. So that was the last four, the final four. And that was kind of the, the last turn. You had to be by the first ranked, by the first 16 in the world in order to even play the Masters. And then that was the first time that I won two rounds. The year before, I, I lost uh, in the first round, I think, to Steffi. And that was my first year playing. And then after that, I still hung in there for the next few years, maybe four years. In, in 1999, I got my back surgery and then I hurt my back. And it happened in Australia that I, you know, I felt something flying from one tournament from Australia to Tokyo. And I kind of got out of the plane like a question mark and I, I couldn't get straight. And they tried everything, acupuncture, kyber, I mean, you name it. Uh, and nothing was really working. And then a couple of months later, felt a little bit better, but then I kept fe- feeling my hamstring. And then I got to Holland and I got to this really top soccer uh, coach that, that was the doctor for the soccer teams in Holland. Mm-hmm. And he stuck like a pillow under my back and he said, okay, does your leg feel, do you feel it now, your hamstring? I said, no, I don't feel anything. He's like, okay, it's not your hamstring. It's, 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 it's a disc, it's something in your back. Mm-hmm. So then they took an MRI and they saw that I had a big herniation in, in, in my back. So um, even trying all the holistic, like, you know, deep tissue massage, mm-hmm. um, all kind of things, yoga, you name it, nothing was really working. So I did do the surgery at that time. 
Um, and and I, I that's what you said. I had to say, um, I mean, I tried actually. I came back the year after, played the first round of the French Open, thought that I was okay. But then I won the first set in the first round. And then the second set, it was four all and it started raining. And I went back in the locker room and I sat down and boom, I couldn't come up again. Mm. So it, it wasn't uh, resolved. So then I had to make that, that very difficult decision because I was at that time like, 12 or 11 in the world you know i was kind of mm-hmm. but still making that masters every year in, in, uh, in madison square garden so i was at the top of my game and it's just a matter of a couple of matches here and there that you can go to five in the world you can you know so it's very close so to make that decision was was very difficult like you said you know you work really hard to get to that level and um so so yeah that was 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 really difficult but then um when I came back, so this is five years later, Sean is like, okay, what are we going to do now? And I loved tennis, but I also liked all the other sports. I loved horses. I liked farm. I liked dogs. I liked, so I always felt that the kids that, that wanted to make it and went to this tennis academies or tennis camps over the summer, um, they, they played tennis all the time. It was like six hours of tennis. And then they maybe jumped in a swimming pool for an hour and that was mm-hmm. it. So I decided when when I was retiring that I wanted to start this tennis camp, but with a real camp atmosphere, with campfire nights and with horseback riding and tubing and, you know, feeling that the kids really had a camp experience. And that's when we, we bought the, the farm, 300-acre farm in Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so that went really well for five years. I, I went from trying to be the number one tennis player in the world to trying to have the best tennis camp in the <laughs> yep. world because like you say you have that ego you have that passion for whatever you go into it's like okay now i'm gonna be the best in that right so i think i started to get pretty successful but at the same time um, my husband went to the seminar and it was about how to release a stress in your body and how certain things can trigger uh, that, that your body doesn't heal so at the same time, we're kind of looking and we really wanted a family, we wanted kids and everything. And with my back injury, that was still lingering. If I, if I would play with the kids in the camp or more the coaches in the camp, mm-hmm. uh, it would still, still bug me. So I could play exhibitions and do clinics, but I could never hit that big surf because it would right away kind of trigger the injury. Mm-hmm. So he, he kept digging and he went to the seminar and the guy said, did anything happen around that time when Brenda hurt her back? And uh, Sean said, now, not exactly at the time, but when her mom died, she had to fight really hard. Every time she did well, there was a lot of stress and, and she, she never really grieved. She never really got over it the proper way because the the tennis tour keeps going you don't have time to sit down Mm -hmm. and say okay let me take a break for a while because then your ranking is gone so he said i would say that was the major thing and then uh, this guy said okay that's what we have to attack and there's this affirmations and tapping and there's all these different techniques that can go back in that time release those issues that stress and then i think her body will heal i think she will be fine so Sean came home and it's like, I think I got the missing link because I was not the only one that, that had issues and mm-hmm. were doing a lot of things right, but it wasn't clicking. You know, the, the injury was not going away. The cramping on the court was not going away. Certain things that we were working with juniors at the time, 
that that had really it was mental you know you could see yeah. they're in amazing shape and after the first set they suddenly start cramping but they could run five miles in the deep sand on the beach so you knew there was something mm-hmm. was off and this uh so i was kind of sean's guinea pig but there was also a couple of juniors that i was working with at the time i had like an academy program kids living in my house at the mm-hmm. time and and we were helping them out too with it like this one boy he his parents were going through a divorce this other boy they were had to default on their house on their note and so you saw all these issues when they were playing and it had to do with with stress on their body so sean did it to me and sure enough i mean it was like amazing and sure it helped what we find out now that i was eating clean i was eating everything organic you know very clean Mm -hmm. i was doing the yoga i was doing the workout but my injury was there and then when he did that releasing and the tapping and now 15 years forward you know that that was in 2006 when when he started learning all those things now he goes deeper and he just goes straight to god and it's just like okay let me but at that time it was the beginning and it, it really helped and at that same time when i start feeling better and start beating the coaches at the camp they're all like now why are you not playing tennis I said, no i i'm doing this because i want a family i want kids i mean mm-hmm. that stuff that's gone you know i'm 36 37 years old i mean it, at the time i was 36 so um then then um so then the dutch federation calls me and asks me if i can be the federation cup coach the fed cup coach that that i liked so much when i was Mm -hmm. playing so i said oh yeah can't wait i'm coming to holland now i'm gonna be the coach and and i'll do it so i get there but i was feeling so good physically that the one girl didn't show up, Misha Krychik. It's the sister from Richard Krychik. Richard Krychik won Wimbledon, and mm-hmm. his his sister started playing and became very good too. So she was the number one player at the time from Holland. She was thirty in the world. But then the next player in Holland was like a hundred in the world, and the next player was one hundred fifty in the world. So when I came, they said, "Yeah, Misha is not here. Do you think you can play a doubles match with with the girl that's not really gonna play, but against the two girls who are gonna play doubles?" So I said, yes, yes, I, I sure, I'll play. And I said, you're back okay? I said, yeah, it's actually been feeling really good. But <laughs> before I got to Holland, I was actually skiing for a week with my family because mm-hmm. it was in February that they... So I said, I haven't really played that much, but sure, I can play. And because the big serve is just, like I said, it's just a talent, fast arm, born with it. You, you will never lose it. If my body was okay, you know, you never lo- lose it. So I'm playing with this girl doubles and we beat the girls that had to play the mm-hmm. the fat cup so the coach goes um i don't think you should be coaching i think we need you to play maybe not singles but at least doubles so i said oh shoot okay this is different you know mm-hmm. um now yeah i mean what's what's that call to your husband like just calling him up saying hey so i'm not going to be coaching but i'm actually <laughs> going to be playing uh what is that like yeah no it was very exciting times you know very exciting times but the the minute i, I played and the press got all over it they're like okay now you're playing doubles then the one girl got hurt that was a singles player so now suddenly in the third match, I'm playing singles and doubles, mm-hmm. winning both matches. So so the the press in Holland, they they were searching, you know, the, the the first girl was good, but then the second girl wasn't really breaking through. So they're like, Brenda, when are you coming back? When are you gonna play again? When are you gonna play on the tour? So I was like, oh man, I don't know. So I had uh, disability insurance at the mm-hmm. time with Lloyds of London. 
and they didn't i had to give the money back that they gave me at the time what was um you know when i was playing it wasn't that much when you're top 10 in the world you're making that but now with the camp and everything in order for me to pay that back i would have to sell the farm pretty much mm -hmm. in order to do that so I was like, the, the Fed Cup, I could play because there was no points. It wasn't the WTA tour. It was just mm -hmm. for your country. But then if I really wanted to come officially back on the tour, I would have to do something with them. So I was playing a lot of exhibition matches. And mm -hmm. this guy, Craig Lindner from Cincinnati, he's like, Brenda, you know, this is the thing that I would give him. And I say, you give all your prize money, whatever you make, you know, you give back to them if they allow you to play again. And uh, so so that's what I did. So I just started again. And um, yeah, that's when I hit uh, when 37 in Cincinnati because my husband is from Cincinnati, play, grew up there, played mm -hmm. football. So we were very close. The guy Craig Lindner that I was mentioning, uh, they, they kind of sponsored, they were the owner of the tennis tournament. So that was the first tournament who gave me a wild card. And that means, you know, I had to start over. So I, my ranking was 1,500 in the world. So, you know, you don't get in anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I had to play all the 10,000 to 25, the, the futures they call them, just start from the bottom, work my way up. So Cincinnati was the first tournament who gave me a wild card. That is but, so cool. Yeah. So then, then I played on the center court again on a big court with a speed gun. And that was kind of the first time that I played on the speed gun. And then the clock set 130 miles an hour. And uh, that was at the time world record because uh, Venus had her serve at 127 miles an hour. When, when I quit and I hurt my back, I had the record, but it was 123 miles an hour. So actually coming back and I think, you know, having to do all those exercises for my back because mm -hmm. it was very important that all the muscles around my back were strong. Even that it was feeling better, it's just very important to do that. So a lot of new things working out wise were coming out, cattle belts, club belts, mm -hmm. ropes, you name it, you know, that I never had 10 years before that. So I think I was in better shape when I came back than when I was even playing before. You know, you learned so much mm -hmm. uh, over the years. So that was that was awesome to do it in my husband's town and everybody stopped and stopped the clock and they were like 130 miles an hour. Now the only problem with that was that I got the wild card in the qualification. So it was the qualifying, that it was the, the last round in the qualifying that I was playing. So it's on a center court. That night, Serena played on the same court uh, in Cincinnati. But Venus got, I don't know if she got upset or her, her managers, because Venus and me, we play a lot of exhibitions here in Palm Beach. Um, but they said because it was the last round in the qualifying, they were not going to count it. And that happened a year later, like maybe a year and a half later, because it was in the World Book of Records and it was everywhere clocked. So then uh, I wasn't playing that much with that ranking. I was trying to get up. It took me two years to get back to like 120 in the world. And, and so I wasn't playing on, on, the, on the big stadium courts. And even when I was in Holland, they gave me a wild card for this grass tournament. On grass, it's cold. It's mm -hmm. it's, it's yeah. hard. I, I hit like 126, 127, but couldn't break that record. And then even the year after, now I'm in the main draw of Cincinnati. Uh, I had to qualify, but qualified and got to the main draw of Cincinnati. Playing the quarters against Patty Sneeder, who was also kind of coming back. 
and it was cold. We played eight o'clock at night. Again, the balls were heavy. Mm-hmm. It was just, and I tried my heart out, you know, and I kept looking at that clock and it was like, I think the fastest one was like 127, 128. But that 1.30, yeah, you just don't do it every, I mean, nobody does, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. would hit like a steady surf of 125, 126. And all the players will say that most players would hit one a set. Most of them are like below the 120, like mid mm-hmm. 110, 115. But I always had like a pretty steady serve like that. But uh, yeah, so it was too bad because, you know, I mean, even that I think one girl hit it now 131 or something, Whoa. but it's still the 130 day. You have to really search for it. And I have mm-hmm. my world book of records that it's in, but hey, you, you know. got that. If you got that, I think that's important. But no, Brenda, I think your career, it's its such a cool and, and again, very grateful that you, you came on the show to tell us a little bit about it. Because again, it's, you know, injuries are such a part of careers and the ups and the downs, obviously, the unfortunate incident, um, you know, losing your mother, especially as you said, you know, two weeks before your wedding, your highest world ranking, all these things are going well. And, and something, you know, had to come and, and uh, I guess ruin the party for lack of a better term. So it is unfortunate, but it that is uh that is life i guess it's some um, you know sometimes those things just happen and you seem like a uh, pretty strong person so it seems like you're back here on the other side i guess and so uh the the last topic i do want to talk about is you started a foundation as well the ted's foundation and that's actually how we got connected um right. so please you know again thank you so much for the story on your career but now i want to know what you're up to after your career was over so tell us a little bit about right. the ted's foundation and what you're doing Right. Now, what we found out, obviously, the way Sean, my husband, healed me, healed my back and healed a bunch of kids that we were working with at the time um, with with the, the stress, the elimination of that. And, and then we figured it had to be a whole package. It wasn't because if they didn't eat right and they put a lot of uh, food in their body that caused stress. I mean, some people are allergic that cause stress. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, so there's all these different functions uh in your body that can cause stress by me it probably was my mom but even after that things happen you know and you constantly have to kind of work on that so when when we got the camp back and we started really like okay we're gonna do the tennis camp again now we are gonna feed all the kids organic and a very clean diet because in the beginning it's expensive to feed all Mm -hmm. these kids a certain way so we also had a big garden and we have our own chickens and we have our own cows now and everything like that because the closer you can get it the Mm -hmm. cheaper it is and you can get the good stuff so anyway um when we got we helped a couple other families with different things and this one lady she said why don't you start a foundation and why don't you do this for families you still have your tennis it's still Mm -hmm. you know you're still going to attract a lot of tennis players but it was really for everybody now that has certain issues you know Mm -hmm. that like you said i lost my mom there's people in in not just being an athlete but they're just have to go to work and their back stiffens up and they can't live their life anymore they can't play with their kids or they can't have a family so we we help a lot of different families now that are coming to to the camp so TED stands for uh, what you think eat do and serve yourself and others so after you learn all those things, you know, hopefully you spread the word and you show other people to, to live a, l- a certain way. Um, what we did figure out is that organic food is expensive. So what we're trying to teach is families, just like 
you know, we don't have a gazillion dollars to just shop everywhere we want. So we figured out a lot of ways to order things online or go to Costco and um, mm-hmm. a lot of ways that we teach the people grow their own stuff if they can have a grow tower or things like that. And, uh, and or if they cannot afford organic fruits or organic things, they can wash it in apple cider vinegar. So we, we teach them a lot of tricks and teach them how to cook because you and me know if you go out for dinner, I mean, I can spend $100 on our family, right? I have two boys. They're 9 and 11. They'll eat like <laughs> – and then they said, can we bring a friend? So uh-huh. if we eat in, it, it, you know, they say whole foods, whole paycheck. But in all reality, when we eat inside and we eat at home, we, you save a lot of money that way. So at the camp when these families are coming, we teach them about stress, but we also teach them how to cook and how to, um, yeah, buy certain things for cheaper and – yeah, a lot of things. And then we're at the farm, so they can get disconnected from all the noises mm-hmm. in the world. And um, same thing as my tennis camp. It was kind of the same philosophy. When when you bring your family, you don't really want to bring them to a building and get all this. I mean, it's way more fun if you can go tubing in a river and then you mm-hmm. can go paddleboarding in a lake and then learn some things about stress and this and that. And then you go horseback riding and then you go, you know, feed the pigs and get the eggs. So... I just thought it would be great in that um, feel to it, you know, that you're in a farm and, and yes, you learn things, but you're also having a great week with your family and get to disconnect a little bit. That is fantastic. Think, eat, do, and serve yourself. I like that a lot. And and I think it's it's completely true, right? As you said, you know, whole food, whole paycheck. That's very true. We've kind of seen <laughs> that. I, we just got a whole foods put in not too far from where we live. And while yes, the, the quality is a little is, is higher than, you know, our local shop, right? It's also like two times as expensive. And, you know, hey, I'm not here making a million dollars yet. So a little difficult, right. but it, it is true, right? My parents have pretty much always had gardens when I was growing up. And that always just made it very easy. You didn't have to go out and buy tomatoes. You just when picked a tomato my my grandmother is from italy so you don't you don't think she has like parsley and basil and all of the spices and all that stuff you literally it's like oh you need it so you go pick it uh so that's always been very helpful and and i I completely agree with you i'm kind of on the fence personally um probably will have some sort of garden i'm I, i eat a lot of eggs but i'm like i'm on the fence about owning chickens i don't really know like uh it it's I'm not a big fan of chickens. I'll just be very open and honest about it. But right. I'm sure the, the eggs taste better and it's easier and it's better for you. So yeah, I'll probably yeah we don't lean really eat the chickens yet. We just have them for the eggs. <laughs> just the eggs, exactly. Just the <laughs> eggs. The That's eggs, all I'm yeah. looking for. But awesome, yeah. Brenda. This has absolutely been fantastic. If people want to learn a little bit more information about uh, the Ted's Foundation, where can they go and find that out? It's tedsfoundation.com. Uh, .org right now. We actually changed the .org. So mm-hmm. yeah, T-E-D-S foundation.org. And the whole summer we have uh, weekends and, and weeks and for the kids that for the parents, sometimes it's hard to take off longer. Mm-hmm. But even if the parents or one parent uh, can show up for a little bit and then the kids can stay as long as they want. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, it, what we found out is that it's important that one of the parents kind of know what they're learning. Because sometimes it's hard to grasp. And when the kid comes home, they're all excited and they're like, mom, I want to change yeah. everything. But then they're like, what do you mean? You know, so it, it helps if they get a little bit of it and get a little bit to feel and then they they go. Yeah, 
That is fantastic. Yeah, 100%, right? If your nine-year-old comes home and starts yelling about this, that, and the other thing, the parents just like, hey, I got to go to work. Like, calm yeah. down. So I like that. It's very true. If you could get the parents to be there, they can soak up that information a little bit more. So that is tedsfoundation.org. I'll make sure that is in the show notes. I'll make sure that's on the YouTube page as well. But Brenda, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for, for telling us about your story, your amazing story in tennis, as well as what you're doing uh, with the Ted's Foundation. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you, Michael. And it's a great program that you're doing. Wonderful. Fantastic. No, please. This is my favorite thing I get to do. So you gave me about 45 minutes of your time and I really do appreciate it. Time's the only thing we don't get more of. So thank you for giving me a little bit of yours. But thank you, Brenda. Thanks thank for everybody you. else out there watching. Really appreciate it. Bye, everybody.